The idea is to help us prepare for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is necessary every year. But this year in particular, there are many, many challenges because of the pandemic in terms of synagogue attendance or whatever. Uh, many of us may be at home for a good portion. And uh, so I, the idea is to become more acquainted with the with the city, with the Mahsur. So the first two sessions will focus on Rosh Hashanah and the last two on Yom Kippur. So let's begin with Rosh Hashanah. So the first point about Rosh Hashanah is that the Torah says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is mentioned twice in the Torah. It's mentioned in the book of Ayikra and chapter 23, and it's mentioned also in the book of Bamidbar in the section that lists the additional sacrifices, the Musafim, so there too it mentions Rosh Hashanah. And all the Torah says about Rosh Hashanah, uh, read for example the verse in Vayikra, it's uh, the Torah says in the seventh month, the first day, it will be a Shabbaton, a day of rest. A zichron trua, a sounding a zichron, whatever zichron means, the sounding of Lahaskir is to mention, the sounding of a trua, a holy day, no work shall be done. That's it. That's what the Torah says about Rosh Hashanah. In contrast to the other holidays, where the Torah says a lot more, all of them. But Rosh Hashanah, the Torah says virtually nothing, and the same is true in the book of Bamidbar. And it's interesting that if you think about the readings, the Torah, the Haftorah for Rosh Hashanah, the two days of Rosh Hashanah, the first day is the story in chapter 21 of Breshit, the birth of Yitzchak, the banishment of Yishmael is day one. Day two, a continuation, which is the binding of Isaac, Akedat Yitzchak, chapter 22. The Haftorah of day one is Chana, story of birth of Shmuel. The Haftorah of, of day two is from Yirmiyo, about Rachel who's crying for her children. And none of those readings mention Rosh Hashanah at all. Unlike all the other Torah readings and, that we have, we can find a link, obvious link. But in Rosh Hashanah, we have no link whatsoever. So Rosh Hashanah is a day in which the written word, the Torah Shibbuchtav says very little. And actually the day of Rosh Hashanah is constructed by the Torah Shibbuchtav, by the oral tradition, which interprets the verse in a variety of ways, verses in a variety of ways, and constructs for us this day of Rosh Hashanah. And apart from the fact that the Torah says virtually nothing about Rosh Hashanah, except that it's the first day of the seventh month, a Zichron Trua, or in Bamidbar, Yom Trua. Uh, it also is very striking that if we, think, if we think of Rosh Hashanah, what is the core of Rosh Hashanah? So the core of Rosh Hashanah is, first of all, obviously the Shofar. And secondly, the core prayers of Rosh Hashanah, the core prayers of Rosh Hashanah, and we'll be discussing this this week and next, are the three intermediate blessings that we find in the Musaf service, 
Each one has a name. Each one is a blessing. They're called Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. And we'll discuss that. We'll get to some of that today. But what's very striking is that the Torah doesn't mention Shofar either. There's no mention of Shofar on Rosh Hashanah. The Torah says in both places, it says a Yom Trua or a Zichron Trua. But the word Shofar doesn't appear. And the word Shofar does appear elsewhere. Specifically, the word Shofar, the word Shofar appears uh, in conjunction with the Jubilee year. Jubilee year is found in chapter 25 of Vayikra. The day of Rosh Hashanah is mentioned in chapter 23 of Vayikra. And when it comes to chapter 25, the Yovel, the Jubilee year, then the Torah says, Vavartem Shofar Truah. So when it comes to the Jubilee year, the Yobel, the lands return to their initial owners, the slaves go up freed. And the Torah says there, on the 10th day of the 7th month, Yom Kippur, you are to Taviru Shofar You are to sound the Shofar. And we have the Shofar mentioned several times in conjunction with the receiving of the Torah in the book of Shemot. The shofar is sounded. It's called shofar. And the word yovel is found as there as well, as a synonym for shofar. So the word shofar does appear in the Torah. It just doesn't appear in the Torah in conjunction with Rosh Hashanah. But the rabbinic understanding the Karaites had a different opinion. But the rabbinic understanding is that Yom Trua Yelachem is essentially the shofar. Now it is very interesting that the term the Torah uses is Yom Trua Yelachem. We think of that as the shofar. That's our tradition. But the word Trua is an interesting word. And just a word about the shofar. So the shofar is um, the different sounds that we make with the shofar. Essentially, there are two main kinds of sounds we make with the shofar. There's the plain sound that we call tekiah, and then there is a broken sound. In point of fact, the broken sound that we make with the shofar there are three kinds of broken sounds that we make. One we call a shvarim, which means broken. And that's the, the three sounds, uh, 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 those three sounds, or the shvarim. Then we have the, what we call a trua, kind of staccato, and there's also a combination of the two, first the shvarim and then the trua. And our practice, of course, is to sound all those three sounds, but each one is preceded by a tekiah and followed by a tekiah. So it's interesting, we have a distinction between the tekiah on one hand and the broken sound on the other. Now, where is that coming from? The Torah here in Vayikra chapter 23 said, Yom Chua Yelachem, a Chua. Let's call it Chua, the broken sound. But elsewhere in the Torah, the Torah distinguishes between a tkiah and a trua. 
And the place that that is found, where we have that distinction, is in the 10th chapter of the book of Bamidbar. In Bamidbar, chapter 10, Moshe was commanded to make two trumpets, two silver trumpets, and to sound them on different occasions, both when they're traveling in the desert and after they enter the land. When they're traveling in the desert, says the Torah in Bamidbar chapter 10, when you call people together, you make the tzikia sound, the plain sound. But when you are announcing that we're going to travel in the desert, you make the broken, the trua. The Torah distinguishes between the tzikia and the trua. And that when you enter the land, says the Torah, when you bring your sacrifices, on festive occasions, on Rosh Chodesh, on festive occasions, you are to um, make the tzikiyah sound. However, in times of trouble, in times of war, when you sound the alarm, you make the truer sound. And there the Torah says, when you make the truer sound in Bamidbar, chapter 10, Beniz Kartem, you will be remembered by God and delivered from your enemies. So what it sounds like in terms of the trumpets, I think we could say that the tekiah sounds, when people are brought together in times of joy, that's the tekiah sounds. But the broken sounds is in time of trouble, in time of danger, travel, transitioning from one place to the other, being on the road, that's dangerous. We have Tfilat HaDerech, the prayer that one says on the road, on the journey. You don't know what you will encounter on the journey. A time of war, time of danger. And then you make the truer sound. So our tradition has imported from chapter 10 of the book of Bamidbar from the trumpets, Chatzot We have imported this distinction between the tekiah and the, and the trua. What the Torah calls trua, the broken sound, we have three different possibilities for what that broken sound might be. The trua that we make, the staccato sound, is one possibility of the biblical trua. The other is the shvarim, which is more of a sigh, and the combination of the two. So we import this to to Rosh Hashanah, and each of the truer sounds is preceded and followed by the tkiah, what the Torah, what the Gemara calls the plain sound, the pshuta, the unbroken sound. So it's interesting that these sounds, actually, if you think about it, the shofar, in a sense, is reflective of the day of Rosh Hashanah. And one of the interesting features of Rosh Hashanah is that it's a day which on one hand is a festival. It's a happy day. For example, if someone is in mourning, sitting Shiva and Rosh Hashanah, the fourth day of Shiva, the fifth day, when Rosh Hashanah comes, the Shiva is over. The festivals end the Shiva. So it's a happy day. On the other hand, there's a solemnity and a seriousness perhaps even a fear that is very much part of Rosh Hashanah, Day of Judgment. 
and that's represented by the two sounds. The plain sound, that sounded on festive occasions. Yom Simchat Chem B'Mo'adeichem U'Brashechat Shechem. But in times of danger, in times of crisis, in times of deep uncertainty, on the traveling, in the war, that's Vaharayotem B'Chatzotzrot. In this kartem, you shall be remembered. So the shofar itself is reflective of the dual nature of Rosh Hashanah. And there are communities that mm -hmm. emphasize more the joy of Rosh Hashanah, the festive Rosh Hashanah. And there are communities that emphasize more the day of judgment, the uncertainty, the fear. Excuse me? Is that a question or a comment? Okay. If you're not, please, please mute yourselves unless you have something to say, please. Okay, so that's in terms of the chauffeur. That's, the main focus here will not be the chauffeur itself. The main focus will be the liturgy. But the chauffeur, obviously, is central to, uh, to Rosh Hashanah. Now, let me say one word before we jump into the liturgy. We'll begin this week and hopefully and next week, of course, see as far as we can go. The Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah, Masechet Rosh Hashanah. The Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah talks about the shofar and talks about the blessings, the brachot. So there's the shofar and the blessings which are attendant upon the shofar. So what's very interesting is when the Mishnah speaks about the blessings of the shofar, they are not referring to the blessing that we nowadays make before we pray the Muslim service, the Mishnah probably doesn't even know of such a blessing. In fact, it's not clear that anybody knows of such a blessing because it doesn't actually exist. It doesn't seem to exist at all. When the Mishnah talks about the blessings of the shofar, the Mishnah refers to the intermediate blessings in the Shemona Esrei in Musaf the blessing on Malchiot, the blessing on Zichronot, and the blessing on Shofarot. And that blessing, the Mishnah refers to those blessings as blessings attendant upon the Shofar. The common practice, which has been around for a very long time, that there is the blowing, the sounding of the Shofar before Musaf, after the reading of the Torah, the Haftorah, and then the sounding of the Shofar, that is not actually in the Mishnah. And the question is, where is that coming from altogether? It's a very good question. And we have no recorded blessing in the Talmud. And actually, we have a dispute among the medievals. What is the blessing? Is it to hear the shofar? Is it to sound the shofar? Because well, it never says what the blessing is. Because there is no such blessing. And the fact of the matter is that the practice, the common practice, to sound the shofar before Musaf, which is a very strange practice, because it undercuts where the shofar really belongs, that was done out of necessity. That was done presumably, and this is the general consensus, because there were people that couldn't stay in the synagogue that long. Maybe they were sick, old or whatever. So in order to accommodate those people, we don't want them to miss the shofar. They can't stay for Musaf. So the shofar was sounded before Musaf. And when you sound the shofar, you make a blessing. 
it's not the blessings of Musaf, because that's in the Shemona right? So there's some blessing. So the consensus was the blessing is to hear the shofar, the Shmoa. Rabbeinu Tam thought it was to sound the shofar, Litzkoa. Because we have no recorded blessing. So the point is that the blessing, blessings of the Amidas, the Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, and the and the shofar itself, those two critical components of the Rosh Hashanah service are bound together. And when the Mishnah speaks about the blessings, they're talking about the blessings in the Shemona Esrei of Malchiot, Sichronot, and Shofrot. So I, let's turn our attention now to these three blessings, Malchiot, Sichronot, and Shofrot, and try to understand uh, something about these three key blessings, key pieces of liturgy of Rosh Hashanah. Now, let me say something additionally about the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. The Rosh Hashanah liturgy is unique. We have no, nothing like it. Because typically we know that the Shmo, what we call the Shmona Esrei, the 18. Actually, nowadays we have 19 blessings. But the structure is during the week, three blessings in the beginning, three blessings at the end, that never changes. What's in the middle changes. So during the week, there are 13 intermediate blessings. On the holy days, on the festivals, on Shabbat, and all the holy days, there's three in the beginning, three at the end, and one in the middle for a total of seven. The exception to the rule is Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, we have three in the beginning, three at the end, and three in the middle for a total of nine. And actually, there's a question one can ask here, which is why do we have nine as opposed to having 10? Because the intermediate blessing on all the holy days has to do with the sanctity of the day, Mikadesh HaShabbat, Mikadesh Yisrael V'Yom HaKippurim, Mikadesh Yisrael V'Hazbanim. What happened to that blessing on Rosh Hashanah? Why do we have nine blessings? Why don't we have 10 blessings? There actually is an opinion, one opinion, Tanaic opinion, that there are 10 blessings. That is not the practice. We don't follow that. We have nine blessings. So what happened to the blessing of the sanctity of the day? So the blessing of the sanctity of the day, Kedushat Hayom, is combined with one of the three blessings of Rosh Hashanah. We combine it with Malchiot, the blessing of God's kingship. In the Talmud, there was another opinion, second opinion, that it is combined with the, with the blessing of Zichronot, literally remembrances. We'll discuss that, hopefully get to it next week. Uh, so that's a dispute. But our practice is to combine it with, with Malchiot. Melech al Mikadesh Yisrael, Yom Hazikaron, king of the king of the earth, sanctifies Israel and the day of remembrance. The liturgy refers to Rosh Hashanah as Yom Hazikaron. That's very interesting. We'll get to that in the future. The day of memory, the day of remembrance, that's Rosh Hashanah. So we have nine blessings, and one of the nine, the blessings of kingship, the first of the three is combined with the blessing of the sanctity of the day. And that's significant 
because what it means is that the fundamental idea of Rosh Hashanah, the basic idea of Rosh Hashanah, as reflected in the liturgy, is that the day of Rosh Hashanah is a day about God's kingship. Now the question, of course, is what does that mean? What does that signify when we say the day of Rosh Hashanah is the kingship of God, divine kingship? How does that speak to us? What does that mean? And I'll suggest something about Rosh Hashanah as being a day of God's kingship, the enthroning of God on Rosh Hashanah. And I would put it in these terms. I'll give, I'll give an example of what I'm talking about. The book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, is all about the freeing of Israel from Egypt walking in the desert, they're coming to Sinai in the building of the Mishkan. That's the story of the book of Exodus, the book of redemption. What was the goal? What is the stated goal in the Torah of freeing Israel from Egypt, of Yitziat Mitzrayim? What is the stated goal? When you look at the Chumash, you'll see there are two different goals, two different purposes of leaving Egypt. One is stated to Moshe when God first encounters Moshe at the burning bush. God said to Moshe, I have seen, says God, I have certainly seen the suffering of my people. And God continues, I will go down into Egypt and I will take them out of Egypt and I'll bring them to a good and broad land. Eretz Eretz so one purpose, the stated purpose, is to take a suffering people, an enslaved people, people that have no freedom, can't make choices, and bring them to a place where they won't suffer, they'll be free, and they'll be free to choose. That is certainly one stated objective of Yitziat Mitzrayim. But actually, when you read the book of Exodus, it's clear that that does not appear to be the main purpose of Yitziat Mitzrayim. The main purpose of Yitziat Mitzrayim, which is stated over and over again, is God's command to Moshe to speak to Paro with the following words, Shalach ami v'yavduni. Send my people out that they may serve me. The purpose that's repeated over and over again is that the idea of leaving Mitzrayim we are the servants of Pharaoh, is to be in a, in a situation, to be in a place where we can serve God. And after all, the book of Exodus does end with the building of the Mishkan. The Torah devoted 12 chapters to that and talks about avoda there. It talks about service. So that's a different way to understand the book of Exodus. The purpose was not our freedom. That is a purpose but the primary purpose is to serve God. And that actually is very interesting in terms of how we see ourselves in general. So we see ourselves as essentially, are we self-focused in the sense we want to be in a place where we can make choices, we're free to make choices, we're free to bring our whole selves to whatever we do, which no doubt is incredibly important. I think one could argue that you can't really serve God fully if you're not fully free. 
On the other hand, that's one way to formulate it. And the other way to formulate it is, we're put on earth to serve, to be God's servants, Avdei Hashem. And that emerges from the book of Exodus very strongly and many other places. And that's a different way of seeing the world. Our Rosh Hashanah, the liturgy invites us to see the world the second way. It's not about us. It's about we're here to be God's servants. We want to look at the world from a different perspective. Not from the, not from the perspective we typically see it. As human beings, as Jews, as Westerners. The pursuit of happiness. But that's not what Rosh Hashanah is about. It's about living in God's world and doing God's bidding. And that's the idea of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is different. Yom Kippur actually is very much about us. Yom Kippur is about atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation, repentance. There's very little repentance on Rosh Hashanah. The davening doesn't reflect it at all. There are no penitential prayers. There's no srichot on Rosh Hashanah itself. Though we do have srichot prior to Rosh Hashanah. And there are no confessions. So it's not about primarily about repentance. It's about something else. It is the beginning of Aserity made Chuba. It's the beginning of that process. But it's seeing ourselves differently. It's seeing ourselves as residents in God's world. That's the idea of kingship, I think. So we one way to understand it, and it's very powerful. And it's, I think, to a large extent, not the way we typically see ourselves. That's Malkiot. So now let's, in the time we have today, the remaining time, I'd like to look at, begin to look at how Malkiot figures in the liturgy. And uh, we'll continue with this next week, hopefully Zichronot and Shofarot as well. So Malkiot is the first of the intermediate blessings. It's recited in the silent Shlona Esrei, silent Amida, and of course the repetition. It is introduced, it's the fourth blessing. It's introduced by Oleinu Lishabeach, which is the introduction to Malchiot. And Malchiot begins with the second paragraph of the, of the Oleinu. Alkeinu Kavelucha Hashem Oleinu we are praying that God King should, should be recognized by all. And that's the beginning of what we call Malchiot. That's the fourth, that's the fourth blessing. Before we get to the fourth blessing, we have the third blessing. Third blessing is the blessing that we say all the time. Typically it ends with the words Ha'el HaKadosh. And on Rosh Hashanah, certainly made tshuva ha-melech ha-kadosh. But in that third blessing, that's where we, that's where in the repetition of the Shemona Esrei, most of the additional prayers, the piyutim, are added. And not only in the repetition of the Shemona Esrei, but what is very striking is that even in the silent Shemona Esrei, the third blessing of the silent Shemona Esrei, said it to ourselves. There is a little poem in that third blessing. And the poem is the following. 
you have your Machzorim, you can see it. And perhaps many of you remember it. It starts with the words, It begins with the words, Therefore, God place your fear, your dread, on all of your creations. The fear, the dread, everyone should fear you, they should prostrate themselves to you. This is the first paragraph of that prayer. The second paragraph talks about Israel. God grant Israel dignity, respect. That's the second paragraph. The third little paragraph is that the, the righteous should see and rejoice. That's the fourth, third paragraph. The wicked kingdom should be eliminated from the world. And uh, it ends with, and then you shall reign and Finally, Kadosha Tav and Arashimecha, you are holy, your name is awesome. It ends with the blessing, Baruch Ata Hashem, Hamelech HaKadosh, blessed are you, the holy king. That is a uh, little poem that is recited even in the silent Amida, in all the Tfilot, of Rosh Hashanah and also of Yom Kippur. And in fact, in Eidot HaMizrach, I believe that it's even recited during the 10 days of repentance. I'm not sure all the days of repentance, but I was in a minion where it was recited during a seventh day Shuvah. It's a very beautiful tefillah. Now the question is, what is, that, what is this tefillah about, this poem? And there's something very striking about the poem, and this occurred to me just yesterday. Uh, I hadn't thought of this before, and I wanted to share a thought about this poem, Uvechein Tein Pachtecha. Uvechein Tein Pachtecha, so, Which is in the third blessing. Starts with the words Now let me just say in general, in the Talmud there's a dispute, two interesting disputes in the Talmud about these Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. One dispute is how many verses are cited in each of these blessings. The view of Rabbi Akiva is that there's a minimum of 10 biblical verses that are cited in the Malchiot, the Zichronot, and the Shofarot, and not only 10 verses, but more specifically, three from the Torah, three from the Ketuvim, which is the Psalms in our case, 
three from the prophetic writings and a tenth verse from the Torah. That's the minimum. That's Rabbi Akiva. There's another opinion. Yochanan Ben-Nuri, he says you only need three verses. One from the Torah, one from the Ketuvim, and one from the prophetic writings. That's one dispute. And there's another dispute. That is, where do you say the Malchiot? Do you say the Malchiot in the fourth blessing? That's what we do. Or do you say the Malchiot in the third blessing? After all, the third blessing ends with the words HaMelech HaKadosh, the Holy King. So saying Malchiot in the third blessing would not be presumably out of order. Our practice is to say Malchiot in the fourth blessing. But there is something very striking about this poem. Because we say that God will, in fact, or we're asking God to place God's awe upon all that God has created. That's the first paragraph. And God grant dignity to your people, to Israel, the restoration of David, King David's line, and then the saintly ones will rejoice. They will cry out in joy. And then it says in the fourth paragraph, you will reign over all your creations. In Zion, in Jerusalem, your holy city. As it says in your holy writings, and it quotes a verse. And the verse that it quotes is from the Psalms. Psalm, Psalm 146. And the last paragraph, you are holy, your name is awesome. There's no God apart from you. As it is written, and we quote a verse. God is raised up, the Lord of hosts is raised up in judgment and sanctified through righteousness. So there's something striking that this poem ends with two verses. The next to last verse, the penultimate verse, is from Ketuvim, from the Psalms. And the last verse is from Yeshayahu, from the prophetic writings. What's missing then, if we see it as Yochanan or mild upon Yochanan ben Nuri's Malfiot, what's missing is the verse from the Torah. Because the order is not Tanakh, not Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. The order that we have in Malfiot, Zichrot, and Shofrot is Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im. And here we have Ketuvim Nevi'im at the end, all that's missing is Torah. And it's interesting that the poem begins with the words, Uvechein, therefore. Therefore, presumably follow something else. So what does it follow? So I think we can presume that there was a Torah verse. And the Torah verse that we don't have in our Siddur, our master doesn't have it. But Uvechein suggests something comes before, and the Torah verse that comes before, I believe, was probably one of the three verses that we find later, which is 
Hashem Yimroch Leolam Va'ed, God will reign forever. Now, why the Torah verse is missing many years ago, someone suggested that perhaps the Torah verse is missing because there are only three Torah verses that mention God is king. So if we mention the verse here, we would preempting, we would be preempting what we want to say later on. And fundamentally, Malchiot comes later. We don't want to preempt it. So it hints at the verse, but doesn't mention it. And I believe that is true. If there is a verse, it's Hashem Yimroch Yolam Ba'ed. And I had the following thought about Hashem Yimroch Yolam Ba'ed. Hashem Yimroch Yolam Ba'ed, God shall reign forever. That verse is taken from the very end of the Song of the Sea, Shiratayam. We cross the sea, we sing at the sea, and the very end, we talk about crossing over to the other side, and we talk about a temple that God will build. Mikdash Hashem Yodecha. To the Emo Batita Emo, bring us across to your place that you will establish. That God's hands will establish. God will build this temple. And their God will reign, will be king forever. Now what's interesting is that is the end of the song of the sea. But the song of the sea itself talks about the redemption of Israel. God brings us through to the other side, but also talks about the destruction of God's enemies. And in particular, it mentions many different nations who hear about, who hear about what has transpired at the sea, and they're afraid and they're frightened. Shamu amim yir gazun, seven words for fear. And the last two are, Fear and dread shall fall upon them. In witnessing your mighty hand, they will be silent as stone. And this poem begins, It exactly talks about and I would go beyond that and make the point that in the Torah, when we are delivered by God, we are saved. The nations are hearing this, are frightened, and they're silent. And over here in this poem, it talks about on one hand, that the world should fear God. It talks about in the next paragraph, God give your people kavod, which is one of the central words of the Exodus, that the it's all about God's glory, God's kavod, as opposed to Mitzrayim. And the third paragraph, it talks about the tzaddikim who see, this is we saw at the sea, they will cry out in, in joy. So the idea of silence as opposed to crying out, as song. Over here in this uh, 
poem, which is reflective of the Malkyot of Yochanan Benuri, it talks about the people crying out in joy, as opposed to the others who were silent. And furthermore, God, you will eliminate the wicked, the wicked kingship. The word Zadon is a term that the Torah uses specifically for the Mitzrayim, and we have it in our prayers as well. So it's very interesting to see this as reflecting the three verses, Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im. It's a kind of Malchiot, and it's a beautiful poem. And it's interesting to note as well that this particular Malchiot uh, composition, the Uvachain, specifically mentions, when it talks about the restoration of Israel, it specifically mentions Simcha liyartzecha, sasol liyrecha, utzmichat keren v'davidavdecha, v'aricha ner v'ben yishai m'shichecha. In this composition, and we don't really have this in the Malchiot later, but in this composition, it actually talks about human kingship. But human kingship that is reflective of divine kingship. We don't really have that later in the Malchiot, but we do have it in the Torah reading, the Haftorah reading of the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Because the Haftorah of the first day of Rosh Hashanah is the story of Chana. And after Chana gives birth to Shmuel, she sings her song in the second chapter of Shmuel. And it's all about kingship. In fact, it ends with Yitain Ozlum Alko, the Yarem Kerem Mishicho. So the Haftorah of the first day Rosh Hashanah talks about Chana's prayer for the king. And she talks about what the king should be. In the book of Shmuel, it doesn't always work that way. But the aspiration, maybe the messianic aspiration, is that the human king reflects God's values. And that's one of the reasons, I believe, that they chose the story of Chana to be the Haftorah for the first day of Rosh Hashanah. If the first day of Rosh Hashanah is about divine kingship, about seeing ourselves in God's world, which it certainly is, but then the question is, we as people, how do we, how do we make that happen? How do we reflect that in the way we operate? In terms of our, how we see kingship, how we see, how do we, how do we govern ourselves? How do we see government? We aspire to a government that reflects God's values. And it kind of spells out the values. It's essentially taking care of those people that are most vulnerable. That's how Chana sees it. And so Rosh Hashanah is primarily, the focus is certainly God's kingship. But this has implications to human governance and government as well. So this is the very beautiful poem, And I believe Uvachain is an allusion to the verse at the end of Shirat Ayam, Hashem And if that be the case, we have exactly the same order as we have later, Torah, Ketuvim, and Devim. Uh, let me stop for one second. Does anybody have any questions at this point?
If not, I'll just continue for 15 minutes. And if you have questions, we can put in the chat or unmute yourselves and we'll. Rabbi Silver, um, yes? Gerval Thayer uh, wrote, why was the verse removed? Uh, that was a question that was posted to the what's, chat. What's the question? Why was the verse removed? So I mentioned earlier that the suggestion was that the verse was removed because, because the, because whatever the verse is, I suggest it's Hashem But whatever verse it would be, see the problem, the problem with the verses referring to God's kingship, let's say later on, we actually need four Torah verses for God's kingship because three from the Torah, three from the writings, three from the prophets, and a fourth verse from the Torah. Now there are rules about what verses qualify. Essentially, the verse that qualifies is a verse that has the word melech in it. The problem is that the, there are always three verses in the Torah that are appropriate for Malchiot and have the word melech in it. And that's why if you recall later in the Malchiot, and we'll get to that hopefully the end of this week or next week, when we're searching for a fourth verse from Malchiot, from the Torah, we can't find the verse from the Torah, and we're forced to choose a verse that doesn't have the word Melech in it. The verse that we quote, Uva Torah Mar, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. The Shema is conscripted, is called to action, because there is no fourth verse that has the word Melech. So therefore we're forced <coughs> to choose the Shema. So the point that the fellow made was that if we cited the verse over here, and after all, we follow the view of Rabbi Akiva that the real Malchiot is later, if we cite the verse already here, we would be undercutting the real Malchiot later on. We don't want to do that. So because we don't want to cite a verse here that will be a central verse later, it was alluded to, but it was not actually mentioned. That's the claim that my friend made many years ago. I thought it was a very interesting claim. Um, I have a question. Uh, yes. What, what is the bottom uh, the difference between Rabbi Akiva that we need three Pesukim and uh, the other uh, point of view that we only need one? No, the, 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 right. I, I mean, why, what they're fighting about there? Yes. I don't really know. It's a good question. But I will say the following. This is not directly answering your question, but it's an important point in any event. Let me say something about this now. And I would say this, one of the hallmarks of the Rosh Hashanah service is the pr proliferation of psukim. Actually, Rabbi Akiva is strange. You need 10, 10 psukim. Because um, we would have said, I would have said one, one is sufficient. One from the Torah, one from Ketuvim, one from the Vim. Rabbi Akiva requires 10. And the point of requiring 10, whatever the number 10 signifies, 10 is often a creation number. And after all, the day of Rosh Hashanah is about creation. And we'll get to that hopefully next week. There's a lot to cover here. I'm not sure we'll get to everything, but we're going to make a different point about Rosh Hashanah. And that is 
Rosh Hashanah, as I suggested, is a day about God. Say, in contrast to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is an easy day to understand, actually. Yom Kippur is about repentance. It's about us. Rosh Hashanah is a day, a God-centered day. And we are very reluctant in the tradition to talk about God. There's a long-running dispute over centuries about whether we should say anything about God at all. Of course, it won't be accurate, and it won't be sufficient. So I would say in talking about God, the best way to describe God, to talk about God, is to use God's language. And therefore, we have chosen that the entire Rosh Hashanah service, fundamentally, is the recitation of verses. And I pointed out in the past something very, very interesting about the difference between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And it's the following. The Malfiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, blessings four, five, and six, are introduced, actually, when, the, when, the, when we repeat the Shemot Esrei, the, the Chazin, actually, before he gets to Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, the Chazin asks permission to pray. Ochilo la'el. Ochilo la'el. It's a, it's, a, it's a request. It's a reshut. It's a request. After Ochilo, then we are starting with the Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofrot. On Yom Kippur, exactly in the same place in the service, the Chazin says, Ochilo Ra'el. And on Yom Kippur, what follows Ochilo Ra'el, the permission, permission to pray, is the Avoda. It's a description of, I want to say a reenactment of the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur. Now, if you look at the Avoda, and there are different Avoda that were written over the centuries, very old, but the Avoda fundamentally, all of them, are fundamentally a restatement of the first seven chapters of the Mishnah in Masechet Yom. On Rosh Hashanah, the Ochiwa leads into the service, which is ten verses and ten verses and ten verses, biblical verses. And on Yom Kippur, instead of the biblical verses, we have the Mishnah. And that's very significant, I think, because Rosh Hashanah is about God. Talking about God, we use God's language from beginning to end. Biblical verses, God's word. But Yom Kippur is not about God. God is given, God is necessary. Repentance at the end of the day is an act of grace, no doubt. But fundamentally, it's about ourselves. It's about our ability to change our ways, our habits, to be uh, introspective, to look back, to make commitments, to formulate or try to formulate where we went wrong, try to make some corrections for the future. So that's the Mishnah. Mishnah is a product of human ingenuity and human imagination and human understanding. So that's Rabbi Akiva's view. Yochanan ben Nuri, why one? I think the real question is why 10? Why, why three, 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 and one for a total of 10? Perhaps it's a creation thing, because 10 is a creation number, but it's a very good question. But in any event, I'm not sure I've answered your question, 
But the point about this, the way the service is constructed, that I think is a very important point. Let me make one other point. Next week, I think we'll jump into the Malfiot, Zichrot, and Shofrot, as far as we can go with it. We'll, you know, we have one more week on Rosh Hashanah, but we'll do the best we can. But I did want to make another suggestion here, or point something else out about, uh, about this poem, and let me make the following observation about, about the Amida in general. And it's actually very true on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So we are praying to God. Now the question is, to which God are we praying? And by that I mean, there are many different aspects of God. God has many names. The name is reflective of a certain element of God, a certain aspect of God. So the question is, which name of God, what is the name of God to whom we pray? So in our Amidah, Baruch Atah Hashem is how it starts. The name of God in all our prayers, yud Hey vav Hey, which is not pronounced yud Hey vav Hey, we say Adon, Adonai. Master or Lord, but it's written Yud Hey Vav Hey. One might say the uh, Eternal One, past, present, and future, and that's the God whom we address. And Yud Hey Vav Hey carries with it many significances. It's typically seen as a God of compassion, not just the God of justice. So there are two gods. I want to say two aspects of God that we address. The two names of God, basically. Hashem, we would say, which we pronounce Adon. What's interesting is that on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, especially Rosh Hashanah, there's a different name of God that appears in the prayers. And the name of God that appears in the prayers on Rosh Hashanah is Hashem Sivaot. Hashem Tzvaot. For example, the end of this poem. Refer to Hashem Tzvaot. And in fact, this is the third blessing. And in fact, typically in the third blessing, we do mention Hashem Tzvaot because in the third blessing of the Shmon Esrei, we have a minion, we say Kedusha. And Kedusha consists primarily of two biblical verses. The first from Isaiah, Yeshayel chapter 6. Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzvaot. Kodo. So Hashem Tzvaot, we find it in the third blessing. We find it in the verse here at the end of this poem. And we find it in the Malchiot, Zichrot, and Shofrot, in the main section of Rosh Hashanah Davening, that is one of the verses in the Malchiot, and the penultimate verse in Malchiot, Zichrot, and Shofrot is Hashem Tzvaot Hatawiyan, Hashem Tzvaot Yogen Alehem, the Lord of Hosts shall protect them. And then we say, Kate again, 
Please, God, protect Israel in peace, with your divine peace. So it is interesting that on Rosh Hashanah, there seems to be a focus on the name Hashem Tzvot. And in fact, what even more interesting is that in every morning prayer, we lead into our prayers by talking about redemption, smichat gua and the end of the section of redemption that leads into everyday Shmona Esri. Ko'aleinu Hashem Tzvot Shmo. The name of our God is Hashem Tzvot. Our Redeemer is Hashem Tzvot. Kedosh Yisrael, the Holy One of Israel. Which precisely parallels what we have over here. Vayigba Hashem Tzvot Bamishpat. V'yael HaKadosh Nikdash Mitztaka. So the question I think is, the interesting question, what is it about the name Hashem Tzvot? What does that name signify? And why on Rosh Hashanah? So let me make one simple, something to think about here. And we'll have to stop very soon. And I'll take some questions then if people have questions. <laughs> the name Hashem Tzvaot, the Lord of Hosts, appears in the Bible, I believe it's 275 times. But what is very interesting is, where does it first appear in the Bible? It's not found in the Torah. It's not found in the book of Yoshua, and it's not found in the book of Shoftim. The first time it ever appears is in chapter one of the book of Samuel. We are told that Elkanah, Hannah's husband, would go up Yamima to bow down and sacrifice to Hashem Tzvaot. And the story continues and tells us about Hannah. And Hannah enters the temple, and she prays to God. Her lips are moving, her voice can be heard, and she prays to God. One verse, and it starts with Hashem Tzvaot, O Lord of hosts. Hashem Tzvaot is Chana's prayer. What does Hashem Tzvaot mean, actually? It's interesting. Hashem Tzvaot. Tzvaot, Tzava, is a collection. Often in armies, it's called Tzavah. It's a collection of people for a certain purpose. Collections of things. And it's interesting that in this third blessing, in this third blessing, and maybe we'll pick up on this next week, the third blessing of the Shemona Esrei, the verse that ends the blessing is, Paragraph: Kadosh Shemecha. You are holy, Ra, You are awesome. In the Shemona Esrei, we refer to God at the beginning of the Amida as Ha'el Hagadol Hagibar Vahanora. Gadol Gibar Vinora. Now here's something to think about for Rosh Hashanah. Actually, you can think about it even before Rosh Hashanah and all year round. The great poets of our tradition, the Paitonim, Kawir and the others, understood something very profound about Ha'el HaGadol HaGibar V'Hanolah. It's reflected in all of the Piyutim. If you go back to the Machzer, that Piyutim, you'll see this, that they understood that Gadol Gibar V'Norah 
is reflective of the first three blessings. Specifically, they saw the word gadol as a word that is connected to Abraham. They saw gibar as a word that's connected to Yitzchak. And they saw norah as a word that is connected to Jacob. And their poems reflect it. In the first blessing of the Shemona Esri, Magen Abraham, you'll see in the, in the Piyutim, it always talks about Abraham, sometimes about Sarah. In the second blessing, it's Isaac and often Rebecca. In the third, it's Jacob, often Rachel. Norah is the third blessing is Jacob, because Jacob said Norah. When Jacob was running away from home, and Jacob goes to sleep in the place of the temple, and God appears to Jacob in the dream. Jacob sees the angels ascending and descending a staircase to heaven. And when Jacob wakes up, Jacob says, How awesome is this place? That's Norah. During the year, the word Norah doesn't appear in the third blessing. But over here, And actually, if you think about it, what was Jacob seeing? Jacob was seeing the angels ascending and descending to heaven. Jacob was seeing the angels ascending to God's temple. And when Jacob wakes up, Jacob says, if you give me the opportunity, I will build your temple on earth. I'll build God's kingdom on earth. We can't go to the heavens. The heavens is God's place. That's the temple above. That's where the angels are. But there's a temple above and a temple below. And if you give me the opportunity, I will build. Yeah, Beit Elohim. Beit Elohim calls the place. That's Hashem Tzvot. There are two temples. Is what goes on in the heavens. That's one thing. Then there's the earthly temple, which is modeled upon the heavenly temple. And that actually is the reason, I believe, that we say Kedusha in the third blessing. Because what is Kedusha? Kedusha is the praise of the angels, which we are imitating, or perhaps even joining in with. And that's the third blessing, and that's Jacob, and that's Norah. Manorah makomazeh. Sivaot. Chana enters the temple. She walks into the temple, and she turns to God of Sivaot. And she says to God, essentially, and that's Chana's prayer later as well. There is the heavenly temple. There's the heavenly Jerusalem. If you give me the opportunity, I will build on earth the earthly Jerusalem. Your kingship, you are king in the heavens. Give me the opportunity, and I will help build the earthly kingship that reflects the divine kingship. That's Chana's prayer. That's Chana's hope. The Book of Shmuel makes it clear how difficult that is. But the aspiration is always there, the messianic aspiration. That's Hashem's fault. That's Rosh Hashanah, actually. It's all about God's kingship. But the Haftarah, the story of Chana, makes it clear that the human kingship should be modeled on the heavenly kingship. It's all about the values and the behaviors. That's what government should be about. And Hannah spells it out clearly what she believes God's kingship is all about. It makes it very clear. 
about protecting good people, protecting all people, people on the margins, the vulnerable ones. That's the human responsibility. That's what God says God is interested in. I've seen the suffering of my people and the human responsibility, human kingship should be all about that. So that I think is, there's a lot more to say about this. And it's very interesting to see how the Paitanim understood the tip of the iceberg here, there's so much more. So the, the plan is next week we will start with the Malchiot in the Zichrorot and Shotrot in the central part of the prayer of Rosh Hashanah. We'll see how far we can get and like to say something about Malchiot and something about Zichrorot and something about Shotrot. I'll stop at this point. If anybody has something to say, question or add, please do. Something um, in, in Bar Midbar, the two trumpets, you call the people together, hold Truma, and when, when is the broken one sounded? The broken one is when they're traveling. When they're about to travel in the desert, then you have the broken sound. Because when you're traveling, you. that's danger. And the parallel to that is in the land when there's a war. So the broken sound is a response to danger. And the I would say the following, that actually on Rosh Hashanah, the shofar has different, we'll talk about this next week, but the shofar is both proclaiming God as king, but once you proclaim God as king, that's the tzkiah. But then what does it mean that God is king? So you have it in the verse that we just saw. The king is a judge. So suddenly we find ourselves in Rosh Hashanah being judged, which is not the most pleasant thing because the judge in this case knows everything. We can't fool the judge. How did we escape the judgment is a wonderful question. So once we recognize that we're being judged, first we have the tekiah to proclaim God's kingship. But then we're being judged and the immediate response to being judged must be the broken sound. There could be a greater crisis than being judged by the all-knowing God. So you have the tekiah and the trua. One might say the trua in response to the initial tekiah. Okay, is there anything else here? Anybody else want to make yeah. a final comment? Yes? Yeah. How does the word several eyes uh, uh, ex uh, connect to the idea that you explained that uh, the collection, it refers to the earthly collection? Yes, my claim is that my claim is that the that's why I brought the Paitanim in. No Ra. When Jacob wakes up, he says, In Jacob's dream, he sees the angels ascending and descending to heaven. And he says, This place that I'm sleeping here, the place that I'm lying, shall be the shall be the house of God. The earthly Jerusalem is a is a positive of the heavenly Jerusalem. So Jacob wakes up, Jacob understands God is in heaven. The human being doesn't go to heaven. That's what the Tower of Babel people thought, we're going to go to heaven. Our, our work is not in heaven. Our work is on earth. But we look towards heaven for guidance. So the Tzvaot over here refers to the heavenly court and the earthly court. And we see ourselves on Rosh Hashanah as proclaiming God's kingship, God's heavenly kingship, and God's kingship on earth, but we also see ourselves as imitating 
as trying to as trying to bring God's kingship into this world. We see that as our responsibility, and I suggested that what that's what Khan is actually saying. After she talks about the way the world should be, the world she thinks God God's values suggest a certain kind of world, which is and she walks into Shiloh, which is totally corrupt. And she says, we need a different order over here. We need to go a different direction. God gives strength to your king. It's a prayer, actually. There's no king yet. But it's a prayer for king. It's a prayer for human insight and that the human governance should be reflective of God's values. And as I said, in the book of Shmuel, the book raises the question as to whether that's just a pipe dream or whether it actually is possible. Now that would require a study of the book of Shmuel. I think of the Shmuel, book of Shmuel is saying in effect, it's very difficult, but it's not impossible. And that's what we aspire to. We aspire to figuring out and implementing a way of living in the world that reflects the best part of ourselves, what we believe to be the best values and what we've been instructed to do. But of course, in the book of Shmuel, it's very difficult because the people doing the governance also have the power. And the power tends to corrupt you. That's the struggle in the book of Shmuel. But the dream remains, the hope remains, and it's a prayer. As it's a prayer in our Rosh Hashanah service. Would Tzavoy also mean that it's a collective effort? That it's not just an individual uh, uh, attempt to model God, but to organize in such a way that... Uh, That's possible. Yeah. It certainly takes a city, takes a universe, actually. And, uh, right, no, no, no question about that. Whether that's implied in the term fault, I don't know, but, but the idea is certainly true. No one person can do it. It's a collective effort. But what's needed, it's a collective effort. What we hope for is that our leaders, our teachers, can give us some guidance, give us some direction, and that we can, or some insight. That's, that's, I think, what leadership is supposed to be about. It's about a path, it's about encouragement, and it's figuring out a way how we can all bring people together to work for the common good. That's what leadership is supposed to be, I think. Okay, thank you very much, and we hope to continue next week, same time, same station. I want to say that we have many, many other classes that Jewish is offering in Ewell, both in Israel and in the States. And I strongly suggest you look into them. I think they are, we put together a very interesting uh, collection of classes and a lot of new people doing the teaching. And in these difficult and uncertain times, I think it can be very, very helpful wherever we find ourselves in Russia, Shani, Yom Kippur. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you everybody you. for joining us. As Rabbi Silver said that we, we we do have uh, an exciting lineup this week um, and for the next few weeks. This afternoon, we're going to be having a class at 1 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. in Israel. It's called The Emotions of Repentance by Rob Soloveitchik, Rob Cook, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Today, we're going to, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Yosef Bronstein is going to introduce the range of emotions possibly associated with repentance and then focus on the Rambam and the Rabbeinu Yonah and see how the texts are understood and experienced in traditional yeshiva basically creating a baseline to better appreciate the continuity and ruptures of the 20th century Jewish thought 
If you haven't yet signed up, it's okay. You can go to www.risha.org forward slash classes and click on the classes. Each class has the Zoom links and the Zrisha Live links and the Facebook Live links as well. We hope that you will join us and we hope you'll enjoy um, learning with us virtually since we cannot physically be together. Have a wonderful rest of the day, everyone. Thank you again, Rabbi Silver. Thank you.